0: Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to be joined by Sebastian Lyon, who I'm sure many of you will know or have heard of. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Troy Asset Management. Sebastian is responsible for Troy's multi-asset strategies and is the lead manager of Troy's Trojan Fund as well as Personal Assets Trust, both of which aim to preserve and grow wealth in that order. Sebastian, thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: Uh, very well, thank you, Mary. Lovely to join you today.
0: Well, it's great to have you on because I think wealth preservation is now at the forefront of most investors' minds. UK um, CPI hit 6.2% in February, achieving a 30-year high. And it's fair to say that it has consistently come in above the Bank of England's expectations, even before the tragic war in Ukraine. What's your current outlook for inflation and the government's ability to control it?
1: Well, I think that, Mary, I think we're in a regime change effectively vis-à-vis inflation. Uh, We've lived in a world for a long time now of of, of disinflation uh, where inflationary forces were effectively in abeyance and in particular um, central banks were more worried about deflation uh, than about inflation and I think that in a post-COVID world um, that has changed and clearly as you say um, the RPI and CPI prints um, have been pretty uh, stratospheric uh, and something that you know really as investors we haven't been used to now for you know 20 or, or maybe longer maybe 30 years I mean the, the RPI was I think sort of six seven eight nine percent when I first started work back in the late 80s and early 90s so I think one of the key things is, is that that a generation of investors have not been used to investing in an inflationary environment I think to answer your question about the the outlook for inflation I think that um, uh, post uh, Ukraine. Uh, that is purely extending uh, what was already a problem. So, so we are, whereas, whereas forecasters were suggesting that inflation was going to abate uh, from sort of the middle of this year onwards, I think that it's not very controversial for me to say that, you know, that those inflationary pressures are going to exacerbate um, over the next uh, six months. So I think it's going to remain stickier for longer. Uh, and then the final part of your question, which was about um, central bankers and what they can do to um to attempt to tame uh, those inflationary pressures. There's not a great deal and 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 to some extent, they have said as much. um I think Andrew Bailey, you know with his uh, asking people to control uh, wage pressures um actually is an indication uh, it's a vignette of 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 an example as to why uh actually central bankers are in to some extent a a trap of their own making they cut rates and they cut rates and kept rates low that increased the levels of debt because debt was made so much more attractive we now have 20 years on and certainly 10 over 10 years on from the financial crisis we now have record amounts of debt as a percentage of GDP that means that rates can't go up very much. Yes, they can go up to maybe maybe 2%, maybe 2.5%, but they can't go up above the rate of inflation. So we can't really go into a world of positive real rates. So effectively, they're, they're somewhat hamstrung. Uh, they're talking t- tightening, um, but clearly we've only seen very modest and very few rate rises um, and from a very, very low base relative to that level of inflation.
0: Yeah. And clearly, just on the inflation Front clearly, there's been a supply shock recently, but there are some people that still think it it will come down naturally. But I wonder what your thoughts are on some of the longer dis- term disinflationary forces. You said we're entering a new regime, and things like cheap labor and globalization have been disinflationary forces. Do you think they might be starting well, to reverse? Well, I
1: think I think that I think there there are signs that it starts to reverse. I, I, and I think this is the difficult one. And this is the answer that I think, frankly, nobody knows the answer to this question. I think there are some, you know, there are some very clever people who think this is all going to be temporary. This is all a function of of COVID and uh, the impact that COVID has had uh, and the pandemic has had on supply chains, and therefore it will ultimately abate uh, in in a year or two's time. Uh, and there are other similarly smart people who think that we are entering a world where inflation is much more likely to be more volatile because um, those supply chains are likely to be uh, continue to be interrupted. And and the demand forces are different because of uh, the amount of money effectively that was printed during the pandemic. And particularly what has changed since 2020 is that in the past, QE was effectively used to stabilize and support asset prices now the difference is is that QE is being used to support fiscal stimulus uh, so it's that money is making its way out into the wider economy and I don't think we fully know the impact of that but that's probably bound to be more inflationary than deflationary so I think I in th- you know, our view at Troy and my view with my multi-asset team is that we remain very open-minded on your question I think we can't be dogmatic we can't say oh well everything's going to go back to normal and it's all going to be wonderful and inflation's going to fall and interest rates are going to go back down again and we can go back into a world of of higher multiples uh, and and paying up for for equities we need to be open-minded about the fact we may be going to a world where there's greater inflation where the forces on interest rates are probably upwards rather than Rather than downwards, um, and that has implications for for asset prices, which is different from the last decade.
0: That's a very interesting way of looking at it. So, on the fiscal stimulus front, it's, it's almost like the, the government's taking over the um, the Bank of yeah. England's the Bank of England's I, job there.
1: I think, Mary, you're absolutely right. I think that I think central banks have actually uh, been let's put it this way less independent in a post-COVID world. And I think central bank independence, I think, is is to some extent being questioned by the market. And that effectively once once governments get their hands on on the the printed money, they're not going to give up that very readily. And so I think that I think you're right. I think I think central banks are are less independent than they were, let's put it like that, um, as as governments have effectively taken over the the, the sort of cash tills in terms of spending fiscally and in a way that if you if you remember halfway through the last decade, it was all about austerity. It was all about um, it was all about good fiscal discipline when monetary policy was loose and to offset the monetary policy, fiscal discipline was was strong and tight. I think those those times have clearly changed.
0: And you said in your latest quarterly report, and this is sort of what we're talking about, but you said we remain firmly in an era of financial repression. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in simple terms, this means um, governments trying to keep borrowing costs lower than inflation so they can inflate their debt away, which essentially is channeling private money to pay down public debt. Uh, what's the savers to do?
1: <laughs> Mary, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. That's exactly what they're doing. Um, uh, I think Russell Napier t- says, talks about financial repression as stealing from old people slowly. You know, it is about uh, save, st- stealing from savers essentially, because you are in a world where inflation is 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 higher than the rate of interest. Uh, what um, when interest rates are above the rate of inflation, which is where they were 20 years ago, you are in an era of sound money. So you are being paid to earn a return above the rate of inflation. Now we haven't been in that world since the financial crisis. And what we've done with COVID and with this higher rates of inflation is we've taken a step even greater towards a, a bigger step towards uh, financial repression, as you say. And and that's not going to change, in my opinion. Uh, so I don't think central banks are going to be able to raise rates uh, above the rates of inflation. Certainly the idea of rates of, of you know, four, five, six percent and, and, you know, a, a real rate of inflation, a real, sorry, a real rate of interest. Uh, today would be, you know, you, you gave a figure of, I think, 6.2 when we started the podcast, you know, you, so a real rate of interest is above that. I mean, there is no way with the amount of deaths in the world that, uh, that interest rates can go to those sorts of levels without tipping the world over into a very very deep recession so so no we are in a world of financial repression and to answer your question what do savers do well i think it's going to be very challenging i think that i think i really think the next five years the next perhaps the next decade are going to be much more challenging savers than the last decade where you've been able to generate a return of rpi plus two three four rpi plus five uh, even not taking a huge amount of risk you've been able to generate those sorts of returns you know, I think that it's, it's it's going to get tougher. I think that people are going to appreciate generating return of, you know, frankly, RPI will be, we, it won't be a bad achievement. I think you need to, uh, investors need to be more realistic about what sort of return that they are going to generate. Because if if inflation is higher, it means that long duration assets, growth assets are, are of lower value in real terms than than they were when inflation was very low. And markets are beginning to catch up with that. So, um, so I think that uh, I think that returns are going to real returns are going to be are going to be harder in the future. And I think we just need to get we need to get used to that.
0: So, with all this in mind, what asset allocation changes have you been making at Personal Assets Trust recently?
1: Well, during twenty twenty one, we were very concerned that equity markets were had run very hard due to the monetary stimulus that we saw. Uh, during COVID to tr- attempt to, to save the economy. You know, we had effectively a self-inflicted recession. Uh, why I would say self-inflicted because, you know, it was a policy decision to effectively close down the economy and have lockdowns. And that led to a lot of uh, speculation in the equity market, particularly at the higher growth area of the equity market. Uh, and we saw a blowout in late 2020, early 2021. Uh, which really, since February, March of last, of last year, has been deflating. So over the last year, that bubble, as it were, uh, has been uh, deflating. We've seen that in, in various parts of the market, which have, have effectively been rebased. What we did last year, in the recognition of the fact that we looked at the equity markets and we felt the valuations were getting towards extremes, we reduced our equity exposure and moved our asset allocation to be much more conservative. Uh, we're now at around 35% in equities, which is right at the lower end of the range. To give you an example, Mary, back at, at the, during the financial crisis, we moved our equity exposure up to 75% because we felt equities were very attractive at that level. Uh, and certainly on a long-term basis, were likely to generate good and healthy returns on a risk-adjusted basis from, from, from the levels that we got to there. You know, In 2021, uh, you're looking at long-term equity valuations, which were at close to a 20-year high. So we felt that equity valuations and the equity returns were likely to be modest. You weren't paid to take risk, and therefore we we reined back our risk and, and reduced our equity exposure, you know, meaningfully in the second half of last year. Yeah. And, and actually, since 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 the beginning of this year, we haven't really moved our equity exposure very much. Uh, it's still around, around that level. Uh, Because I'm actually concerned that that Ukraine may be a bit of a game changer um, in terms of, uh, as I've said earlier, in terms of extending those inflationary pressures, which mean that equity markets remain vulnerable.
0: It's interesting that the types of companies you do invest in are more what might be termed quality growth rather than the more traditional value companies that might fare better in inflation. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it's all about your time preference and and how, what a long-term investor you are or not. I think that um, yes, um, deep value has performed uh, better in the, in the very recent past. And the one of the things we've always done at Troy is we've always wanted to own businesses which are which are resilient, uh, which offer growth um, in the long term that aren't highly cyclical, that aren't sort of feast and famine stocks, if you like which are very difficult to time. You've got to time those. You've got to buy them well and you've got to sell them well. And and often, you know, will one one minute we'll be paying large dividends and the next, next minute we'll be slashing their dividends and not paying any dividends at all. We've preferred within our equities to own higher quality equity businesses that are less cyclical, that are more consistent in terms of their profitability and have long-term track records and have, have management teams that are investing for the long-term and for long-term growth, but importantly that we don't overpay for that. And I think that the quality growth area has been an area you've had to be very discerning whereby you don't want to just run your winners very aggressively and allow multiples to increase. Uh, and on one example we have, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're right in saying, uh, you know, a quality growth stock is something like an alphabet. Alphabet's on about just over 20 times earnings at the moment, maybe 21, 22 times earnings. It's not, you know, by historical standards, by by comparisons with other quality growth stocks, it's not very expensive. And, you know, and those, those, that E is going to grow. So it will grow into that rating very comfortably and be on a teens multiple, if not lower than that, in the years to come. So we can see our way with the stocks that we own where multiples are are going to fall. Whereas I think one needs to be very careful about, and I think the thing that's changed in the last year, eighty months, has been that I think that um, people are looking more carefully at valuations. But what we don't want to do, Mary, is we don't want to compromise on the quality of companies that we own, because you know ultimately, you know that will that will lead to lead to worse longer term returns. But I think that we're coming to an era where actually the sort of businesses that we own, you know, are probably likely to get cheaper and that will lead us to better longer term equity returns and the ability to increase our equity allocation in the future. But if we suddenly reverse the way that we've invested for the last 20 years and start buying much, much lower quality, much more highly indebted businesses that are much more cyclical, then I think that would that would lead us down a, a road to, to trouble further down the line. So um, we don't want to compromise the quality that we own.
0: Yeah, to timing the market can be seen to be a fool's game. Yeah. Um. It, it looks like from reading your your reports that pricing power is something that you focus on. I wondered what the gross margin is across the equity portion of the portfolio.
1: So, so we've looked at this, and 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 the gross margin has been pretty consistent over the last seven or eight years at around sixty percent on average. So we like businesses that have you know, higher returns and uh, have greater pricing power. One of the reasons why we don't like to own highly cyclical businesses is that if you've got a margin of, you know, a few percent, small movements in your top line, and let's face it, in an inflationary environment, we could have, there could be big movements in the top line. Small movements in 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 the top line in terms of sales are going to affect the bottom line disproportionately. What we want to own is businesses which actually those small movements will not disproportionately affect the profitability. So we don't go from profits to loss within the space of a year or two. These are all businesses that, generally speaking, whatever the weather, will generate strong, positive, high returns on investor capital that can grow their businesses over time. So that's where that's where we prefer to fish rather than in businesses which are very low margin and are very vulnerable to those very even modest moves uh, in the top line sort of shifts the profitability you know very dramatically and can shift shift it into loss as well which is clearly what we're we're not looking for i think for this mandate you know there are it's horses for courses mary and um you know there are there are other managers out there who who are happy to take that volatility but i think for for personal assets which is a wealth preservation vehicle we don't want to take very large equity risk either from the point of view of companies with high amounts of debt and leverage or or cyclicality.
0: Or yeah, that, that makes sense. Just just one company I wanted to ask about specifically. Unilever mm. is a big yeah. position. And I imagine it yeah. might have been one of the more disappointing um, in recent years in terms of share price performance.
1: That's very eloquently put.
0: <laughs> Terry Smith and Julian Robbins have been quite vocally critical of the management in recent months. Yeah. Um, I wondered what your thoughts are and the outlook for the company.
1: Well This deserves a little bit of history because we first bought into Unilever back in 2004. And actually, it was going through a sort of similar period then as it is now. So we had a a bit of a margin reset back in 2004. Uh, The company had sort of been over trading a little bit. And as a result, uh, there was a profit sort of rebasing, as it were. And that would provide us with a wonderful long-term opportunity to buy into Unilever. And so Unilever, as a business, has generated good long-term returns for us and generated you know, good dividend growth of, of 8%. And we always say, if, if you've got a company that's generating that sort of dividend growth, the capital should, in theory, look after itself. I mean, Unilever today, compared to peers, is, is a, at about a sort of 8-turn P.E. discount to peers like Nestle and Procter & Gamble. So it's, it's, it looks very cheap. Now, I think there there are some reasons for that. One is management issues, which I think partly come down to, frankly, come down to communication, which I think is something that could be resolved. Uh, I think Terry Smith highlighted that. But I think it's also due to, actually, they had a, a pretty good initial COVID period, because their products are things that people need every day. And then as we've come out of COVID, the company has struggled somewhat. And I think that's partly because emerging markets, which is 60% of their business, we're always going to be slower to come out of COVID than developed markets like the US and, and the UK. And so we were, haven't been that surprised that Unilever has been sort of a little bit slow from sort of late 2020 to late 2021. I think there are signs of things turning the corner. I think with when we're holding businesses for 10 or 20 years, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think it is one we're certainly watching very closely to see whether the business can deliver better returns and you know it's always under review all our holdings are under review but I think that actually for long-term investors Unilever arguably offers good value today so we added to it a little bit last year and and we're it's very much on a watching brief with us.
0: Moving on to bonds something you added a lot Mm. to last year was Mm -hmm. your UK T-bill exposure I think it's now 18%. Yeah, I'm wondering why and, and why own T-bills over cash?
1: Very, I mean, if T-bills and cash are one and the same things essentially, except that uh, T-bills are you know, actually safer than having your cash in the bank. So what we do with our, our cash is if our cash levels grow above a relatively low percentage number, we will put that balance of cash into T-bills temporarily. So that's, so it's, it's short short term, it's, it's up to six month money, basically. But the good thing is, is that their liquidity, which can, you know, if if markets are weak, uh, we see good value within equity markets, we will, we can sell those very, very quickly, move into, move into stocks, move into fixed income, or, or into gold, or whatever it might be very, very quickly. Um, so it wasn't a it's not sort of almost an investment decision it's just a a effectively a a decision of safety which if we've got a large amount of liquidity we'd rather hold it in t bills rather than in in cash it's just worth pointing out that when covid struck in january february and march of 2020 we had 30 percent liquidity in cash or t bills most of it in t bills of that 30 percent we sold 20 percent of that and invested in Increasing our equity exposure, increasing actually our gold exposure and increasing the duration and our exposure to tips. So effectively, uh, that's just uh, the T-bill exposure is is liquidity, which is dry powder. And I think one of the interesting questions that we get about cash is obviously clearly in a world of inflation at 6.2%, you're losing real value holding cash. But cash, even in a world of inflation, has optionality. And actually, we've seen that people who just wanted to be, uh, who who had a cash burning a hole in their pockets and wanted to be invested, you know, clearly, in a, in a more expensive equity environment, they are taking some risk. Whereas in cash, they're they're taking a, a certain risk. Yes, they're taking a risk of of losing their money in in real terms. But actually, cash in an inflationary environment isn't necessarily uh, always uh, the wrong thing to hold.
0: Yeah, you can only lose. <laughs> You can only lose as much as inflation is. Indeed. Um, And your entire index-linked portfolio is in the States, which is um, 29%. I wonder what the real yields are on this and and why they're all in the States, how they compare with UK gilts.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. We used to own uh, UK index-linked until about 2018, where we sold out of our linkers, and we effectively moved firmly into, we had some tips before, but we moved very firmly into tips. The reason for that was because real yields in the UK were much, much lower, where they were negative. Whereas in the US, you could pick up positive real yields. Now, currently, the real yields are about zero, but maybe, maybe slightly negative. But we still think that when we see positive real yields, that's when we lean in and add to our our duration. But the UK, which is 2 to 3% real yields compared to the US, is much less good value. So the potential returns there are, certainly in real terms, are, are lower. One of the things that I've been particularly, well, frankly, pleased by and surprised by has been that inflation in the UK historically has tended to be higher than the US. But in this particular instance in the last year, Uh, UK inflation and US inflation have been uh, nip and tuck, you know, both sort of seven, six, seven, eight percent. And so we've within the index links, we've captured that inflation in the US in a way Mm. that you would have done in the UK. So actually, TIPS have done better as a result of that because there was basically better value there. And there remains better value, we feel, in TIPS over over UK index links.
0: Was that because the US increased its money supply by... Over 25%, which is a lot more. Yeah, than the UK. It, it, it,
1: absolutely. The U UK actually, if you look at M2, the US increased their money supply by 41% from COVID for the sort of 18 months post-COVID, which is the largest, I think, amount of growth in money supply uh, historically. So you know, and what are the implications of that? And I think we're now beginning to see the implications of that. So if you're mm-hmm. a US investor, or frankly a UK investor owning only US tips makes some sense rather than owning fixed income, we feel.
0: What's your view on duration? Are you, are you at the short end or the long end? Um, we
1: are at the short end. We we do increase our duration and decrease our duration depending on the performance of the asset class. So more recently, uh, the asset class has, has been a little bit weaker and we've just increased our duration a little bit. But one of the things I, I talked about duration earlier, and one of the things is that You don't want very long duration in in this current world, I suspect. And the other thing is is that we realise that within our equity part of the portfolio, we are taking duration risk. So what we don't want to do is double up and take long duration within our equities and long duration within our bonds. And so actually our duration is relatively short, sort of three, four, five years. It's around five years at the moment. But we don't want to take very, we've made that mistake in the past with duration, we don't want to take very long duration with our tips and double up on duration with our equities, that would uh, not be a very good uh, way to structure the portfolio. So so we do, you know, if, if we feel as though we're paid to take duration risk, as we were during COVID and real yields went up to almost 1% positive in tips, we then bought some longer dated tips. Late last year, we decreased our, our duration. And then as we moved into this year and and fixed income markets have become more febrile and more volatile, we've just leaned in and, and taken a little bit more risk and taken a little bit more duration. But we're that's, quite careful the way that we, we manage that.
0: That's interesting, because I would have thought if you think that inflations might run higher than expected and that interest rates are not likely to rise much, then you would be better off at the longer end.
1: Yes, I agree. But I think we just need to, and we have been, we have at times been at the longer end. But I think we just need to be careful about, you know, our risk budgets and how much risk we're prepared to take in that in that duration area. Because if you're wrong, then you you'd be hit on your equities and you'd be hit on your on your yep. index on on your index links as as on your on your tips as well. So I think we do have some twenty year tips. So we do have some exposure. To the area that you're talking about, but we we just manage that very carefully. I think in the knowledge that you've got to you, you've got to expect that you you might be wrong, and so you've got to structure the portfolio. You don't want to structure the portfolio for one particular outcome. That's the that's 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 the key, I think, in the way that we approach investing. I mean, we didn't know that COVID was coming along. We just we performed well during COVID. We didn't know it was, obviously we didn't know Putin was going to invade Ukraine. So we want to structure the portfolio so that when these instances do come along that perhaps we can use them as opportunities rather than be concerned about drawdowns, excessive drawdowns.
0: No, that, that makes perfect sense. I guess it's sort of the point of wealth preservation and multi assets In, Indeed. Gold is, an, is another part of the portfolio at 11%. How do you, do you expect this to increase and how do you view the relative attraction of bullion and mining shares?
1: Gold is an interesting one. We've held it for a, for a long time now, really since we moved into this negative real interest rate environment. You know, If, if, if we felt that we were moving into a positive real interest rate environment, we would not hold gold. Uh, we don't think we're there at all. Gold serves a, a number of purposes within the portfolio. Some decide to, to use hedging, uh, use um, derivatives. Clearly, there's a, a high cost there in terms of a, a price to be paid, for hedging your portfolio what i prefer to do in recent years is to hold gold as that sort of insurance policy and certainly with things like ukraine come along you know it it pays out to us when equities and other risk assets are are weaker in terms of the size of the holding i think that it's important to have enough that it makes a difference but not enough that it it it's the tail that wag, wags the dog so I think between roughly sort of 8 and 12% feels to me to be the right amount. Uh, you know, and it's not something that's particularly scientific. It's something that we've sort of worked on over the years and felt is the, is the right level. And again, you know, when, when gold has been weak as it was during COVID, we increased the holding. And, uh, and when, it was, when it was stronger uh, after COVID, you know, we've, we've trimmed it a little bit. But we feel as though it's a, it's a sort of core part of a diversifier. Of in the portfolio, and effectively, what it's doing is it's ensuring us from that that debasing of currency, which is quite clearly ongoing in terms of which you can see within the inflationary numbers. Just on mining, we don't have exposure to to mining directly. It's a lesson that we learned sort of the hard way to some extent. My, the mining gold mining industry is is very highly cyclical, and also importantly, profitability tends to be not very predictable because to some extent energy is a very large input in mining and so sometimes even though the gold price goes up the profits don't rise because uh the costs are rising faster than the gold price so gold mining is notoriously difficult uh to make money in where we prefer to get our equity exposure from gold is in streaming businesses and and the one that we own is is franco nevada and it's been a very good investment for us over the last four or five years and this is a business rather like an asset manager, really, that effectively has streams or royalties from the gold mining companies. It's very well diversified. It has well over 100 royalties and streams. So the consistency of the cash flows uh, is, is much more reliable. And yet we can have, a, if you like, a slightly geared upside to the gold price through Franco, uh, yeah. which we choose to do rather than own mining.
0: When you buy gold, how do you do it? Do you buy it through ETFs?
1: Yeah. It, with personal assets, we don't buy it through ETFs. We, uh, we actually buy it because we're an investment trust. We can hold directly gold directly. So we actually hold it through what's called an allocated account, which is effectively like a bank account. But uh, the gold is held directly in an account and controlled by, by personal assets.
0: Oh, so you don't keep it in your office?
1: <laughs> so we don't keep it in our office. It's held in uh, with JP Morgan, which is public knowledge. It's in the in the account. Yeah. But it's called an allocated account. So it's 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 you know that's that's the the gold that can be bought and sold in our account just in the way that you would own a bank account, or you'd have your settlements that were your equities that were held with your custodian. That's effectively the way that we do it with Pat, but with our open-ended funds, which are regulated by the FCA, where you can't hold commodities directly there we do own physically backed ETFs.
0: That that makes sense. Well, Sebastian, I'm afraid we're out of time, but that was fascinating. I really appreciate having you on and thank you so much for your time.
1: Pleasure, Murray. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you.